Welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, why not check out our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Yeah, how do I follow from that? I've not come from Chicago. Uh, I have come from Northfield today. Um, yeah, um, my name's Paul, and I know that there's certainly some face in the room I don't know. So yeah, um, me and my wife, Amy, um, we lead a small group here at Birmingham Vineyard. You might see us up in, uh, this This is our site, uh, morning city centre service. So we service lead here sometimes, so we're part of that team. And I also am the privilege of being on the preaching team. But as Andrew said, it's been a little while. Um, it's been about a year since I've been on, but I'm, I'm really pleased to be sharing with you all again today. Um, so a few weeks ago, um, I was sharing our small group how several things I've been asking for prayer about um, towards the end of last year had finally been resolved. And I was so grateful to God for working them out. It was just great to be able to tell some of the guys in our group about answered prayers of things that had just been weighing me down for months. And one of them was I'd finally got a quote sorted for getting our bathroom remodeled. It took me ages to get it sorted, but finally got it. And it was just such a relief. Um, and then over the next couple of days, I got hit by a trilogy of frustratingly bad news. Number one, first was our garden fence getting blown over. Um, yeah, I'm just getting lots of sympathy now, and I just building it all up. So that was the first one. Uh, the reason why, partly by the reason why it was bad, and um, last year when we moved into the house, one of our other neighbours had left their broken fence in our garden for so long, and it'd just been really awkward and a really hard time. So now a fence that was our responsibility had fallen down, and I was now that annoying neighbour that was taking their time to get it sorted. Don't panic, guys. I've got someone coming tomorrow to fit it. So that was the first bit of bad news. Second was finding out that our boiler needed to be replaced. And guess how old it was? Ten and a half years old, just out of warranty. Um, and actually, the cost of replacing that was um, exceeded the amount that we just agreed to get our bathroom redone. <laughs> only one more, only one more. <laughs> Man, I've got loads of sympathies. I need to start passing around a bucket to get money today. <laughs> Uh, the, final challenge, uh, the final challenge was at the end of the week, I broke a tooth while chewing a sweet. Um, and so um, visiting the dentist a few days later, I was presented with an ever-increasing list of expensive options to get it repaired. Um, so it's not difficult for me to feel overwhelmed, stressed, emotionally winded after experiencing those things, three in quick succession, after just having shared about answered prayers and enjoying that moment. And it's easy sometimes to be grateful to God when things are going well, but then when difficult circumstances come about, we get frustrated and question, what's God doing? Well, today we're going to look at how Jesus responded to three difficult tests that are more commonly known as the temptation of Jesus. When I was hit with my three challenges, I was grumpy, anxious and irritable. Let's see how Jesus responded. <laughs> Um, so the passage we're looking at today is Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. You may want to get out your Bibles and your apps ready, but it's going to come up on the screen. And actually today I have the privilege of uh, starting a new series of talks here at Birmingham Vineyard where we're going through the book of Matthew and it's called The Clash of Kingdoms. Um, and as we follow uh, Matthew's account of Jesus' ministry, we'll see that Jesus brings about God's kingdom, his rule and reign in practical and loving ways. He heals the sick, he casts out demons, and he invites all sorts of people to follow him along the way. But today, let's start looking at this first conflict of kingdoms in Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 1. 
Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Uh, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. And whenever you're looking at a passage in the Bible, it's really good to look at who the author is, uh, what the context that it sits in. Um, And there are many reasons to believe that Matthew wrote his gospel account of Jesus' life for a Jewish Christian audience. So one piece of evidence for this is he almost entirely uses the term kingdom of heaven throughout the book for describing the demonstration of the power and authority that Jesus was showing. Whereas the other gospels um, describe the same thing as kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven rather than kingdom of God. And this isn't due to a different understanding that Matthew has of what this rule and reign that Jesus was introducing, but it's more out of sensitivity to his intended Jewish readers who chose not to speak or write the name of God out of deep respect and reverence. So as we continue to go through the series throughout the book of Matthew, just bear in mind that this book was intended for traditional Jewish readers, and hopefully that will help us to understand the meaning of some of the passages and phrases. And then the context, these verses come right after the baptism of Jesus. Jesus is baptised by John the Baptist, and as a sign of Jesus' commissioning for the ministry he was about to step into, and Jesus emerges out of the water, he sees the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And this is both a public and a personal confirmation to Jesus of his identity and the closeness of his relationship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. So that happens just before, immediately after this, at the start of chapter four, we find out that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And this wasn't Jesus being abandoned to look after himself, but an intentional decision to follow the Spirit's leading and deprive himself of physical comfort. Just as people still do today, they fast from food or fast from other comforts um, and it allows them to focus on God, align their priorities and experience a physical hunger that mirrors their spiritual hunger for him. So while Jesus is in the desert, he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Another tip for you, when you're reading the Bible and you hear a number, you might want to think, is that number significant? So throughout the Bible, you see the number 40 is linked with trials and testing. Moses spends 40 days on Mount Sinai receiving the law. Elijah is in the desert for 40 days while he's fleeing from Jezebel. Noah and his family are stuck on the ark during the flood for 40 days. And the big one, the people of Israel, wandered the desert for 40 years before they were allowed into the land that was promised them. So the Jewish readers who this was intended for would have been familiar with this. And they'd be thinking 40 This is going to be about tests and trials. So sometimes the Bible is complex, mysterious and confusing. Other times it's a bit more obvious. So after it says that Jesus fasted, he didn't have any food for 40 days. It then says 
He's hungry. <laughs> kind of makes sense, doesn't it? The Spirit of God has led Jesus to a place of severe testing, fully knowing all that was about to happen next. And Jesus isn't this superhuman individual that can wander the desert for 40 days without eating and feeling pretty chirpy about it. He was hungry and tired for sure. And don't you find that when you're hungry and tired or worn out, that you're tempted to make the worst decisions? So when I'm not very focused or busy with work, as soon as I feel hungry, I run down to the kitchen and I gorge myself on as many snacks as I could find. One of the drawbacks of working from home. But when I'm refreshed and I've had a good night's sleep, I'm much less likely to pretend to be asleep first thing in the morning when our six-month-old son makes noises that strongly suggest a nappy change is required. (laughs) And then after a long, tiring day when everyone else has gone to bed, I'm much more likely to browse the internet or the TV for something unhelpful rather than just going to bed myself. But this account of Jesus being tempted isn't made to make us focus on how impressive and unbelievable Jesus' responses to these challenges are. No, instead, it's meant to show us that Jesus has modelled how a human who feels hunger and tiredness is able to resist temptation in a way that we can still learn from today. So let's go through these um, three temptations one by one and see what we can learn from each of them. So the first one, verses three to four. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the if in that statement the devil makes to Jesus is actually perhaps better translated as, Since you are the Son of God, and and that's how it's translated in the message. There wasn't really any um, question from Satan about whether Jesus was the Son of God. Satan knew he was the Son of God. The temptation here to Jesus is more about why should he go hungry? If he's the son of God, why not just speak out to these inanimate rocks and turn them into food? And Jesus doesn't respond by saying, no, no worries, I'm not actually that hungry. Or even, no, I don't think I can turn those stones into bread because if Jesus wanted to, he would have done. Instead, he replies that he is maintained not just physically, but spiritually by the word of God. Again, this is a response that should empower us to be able to respond in the same way. I can't turn stones into bread, just like I can't click my finger and get my fence instantly repaired. But I can use the encouragement of the word of God to help sustain me through difficult times. So Jesus' response um, is from Deuteronomy 8, chapter 8, and it sits right in this section of the book of Deuteronomy that addresses the Israelites' hunger in the desert for 40 years. 40, remember? There God provided the people with manna, with bread from heaven, to address their hunger. But he required that they follow very specific instructions in order to receive his provision. Similarly, Jesus is saying that it's important to dress our physical needs, but it's more important to follow the will of God for our lives. Jesus has been led into the desert to fast for this amount of time in order to focus himself on the will of God and all the work that the Father intended for him. He hadn't gone hungry for that amount of time just to decide for himself that enough was enough and do whatever he wanted. So what can we learn from this temptation? Well, we can learn to be aware that if you're feeling drained and weak, that's when the enemy is most likely to try and tempt you. And we can also be thinking, what lessons might God be teaching us through the hardships we experience? Second temptation, verses five to seven. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the highest point of the temple. 
If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So after trying to tempt Jesus with physical comfort, the devil tries something a bit different. And after what had happened at Jesus' baptism, the devil tries to tempt him with another, even more public and demonstration of his identity and power. He takes him to this visible point about 300 feet high at the top of the temple that would have had witnesses around and says, throw yourself off the top and force God to show you how much he cares by rescuing you. Then all these people will see just how special you are. And the devil quotes scripture to try and justify this action. Um, but the passage that he's quoting from, Psalm 91, that book wasn't intended to reassure people that they could do whatever they wanted and God would always protect them. That psalm is about trusting God and taking refuge in him. But instead, the enemy warps those words and suggests that Jesus needs to put his father's faithfulness to the test. And many temptations will have a small element of truth that's used to help reel us into the lie that sits behind them. There's another example of this right at the beginning of the Bible when the snake first tempts Adam and Eve. He says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And he's suggesting that God had put boundaries in place for Adam and Eve that weren't there. He hadn't said any tree, he'd said one tree. Eve then responds that it was only one tree that he couldn't eat from, but also incorrectly adds that they would die if they even touched its fruit. Again, God hadn't said that. But the enemy's using this, this little bit of truth um, wrapped up in a lie to try and reel them in. And for me, um, when I... Um, find myself falling into little lies that I'm choosing to believe. Um, one example is I'm, I've moved around um, cities throughout my life a bit. I have friends who live in other places who I sadly don't get to see so more. Um, and what I do is I try and I ring them up, um, try to catch up, and I don't get an answer. And the lie that I choose to believe is that person is never available for me, that they don't have time for me, and I don't try ringing again just because one missed call. I fall into the trap of believing the lie that the one missed calls means they don't have time to speak to me. So Jesus responds to this temptation by quoting another scripture, um, again from Deuteronomy, but chapter six this time. But the difference is with what Jesus quotes is that Jesus understands that this was written as an instruction that needed to be followed. He correctly interprets the verse that he's quoting. Unlike Eve, he accurately states the boundary that God had asked of his people. God wants his children to trust him without them putting him to the test. This kind of test would be like a child choosing to take a step um, out off the pavement into busy traffic just to see whether their mum or dad behind them is going to grab and stop them. If you love and trust someone, you don't force them to prove it to you every single day, even though you're grateful when they do demonstrate their love for you. Satan was trying to catch Jesus out. Either he didn't trust God's faithfulness in protecting him, or if he did, then he should prove it in a showy demonstration but Jesus wasn't falling for it. He trusted his father enough not to have to put him to the test. So the second temptation, what do we learn? Well, we learn how to replace lies from the enemy with truths from God. And finally, the third temptation, verses 8 to 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
So despite Jesus' exhaustion and hunger, Satan had been unable to tempt him with physical comfort or by forcing him to prove the faithfulness of his heavenly father. He now gets desperate and goes big. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world that Satan has authority over, albeit temporary and limited authority, and says that he will give them all to Jesus if he makes the ultimate compromise and submits to worshipping Satan. And you can tell from other places throughout the gospel accounts of Jesus' life that Jesus knew pretty early on what he was called to do, that he needed to die as a sacrifice for all the world's wrongs. But here, Satan is offering Jesus an escape route from the suffering of the cross. I can give you glory and power without having to go through all that suffering. Take the easy route and experience all this good stuff now. Jesus doesn't question whether Satan has the authority to offer these kingdoms to him. Um, we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, um, calls that verses there called Satan the God of this age. So there's no doubt that um, Satan had some authority. And in fact, the clash of the kingdoms, the title of this series of talks, is about the kingdom of God coming up against the kingdoms of the enemy. And as you go through the Gospels, you see Jesus showing his power and authority over sickness and demonic oppression, and then ultimately over death itself. Jesus would see God's kingdom extend throughout that area and ultimately over all the earth. Satan was offering authority over fractured, broken kingdoms. Notice the plural. Jesus would ultimately be given all authority over heaven and earth, but it would be along a path of hard work and suffering. Jesus' response to Satan makes it clear who is ultimately in charge, who deserves the glory. Again, he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus refuses the cheap substitute of temporary glory, which would have cost him his most important relationship with the Father for the sake of something even more glorious and enduring. So what do we learn from this temptation? How can we avoid shortcuts and cheap substitutes and look to the even better thing that God might have intended for us? So how can we learn from these three temptations and how Jesus responds to them? How are we going to respond when Satan tempts us in subtle and not so subtle ways? Maybe it's not scanning all your shopping at the self-checkout queue. Maybe it's lying to cover for your boss to help get them on your good side. Maybe it's not leaving your details when you ding someone's car in the supermarket car park. Maybe it's watching that TV show or visiting that website that temporarily makes you feel good, but then you feel guilty later. Maybe your relationship with your partner is strained and you're tempted to find physical comfort with a friend or colleague. Maybe you find yourself not being able to wind down at the end of every day without alcohol. Or what about when you're strained and tested in other ways? When you've cleaned up someone else's mess in your house or in your workplace for the hundredth time? When you've had that third unexpected but significant cost that week that you have to pay? When money is stretched and you think about how much you'd save if you'd cancel your regular financial giving to church? How can we turn around these trials, these temptations, and flip them into something positive? Well, from the three temptations, I've got these three uh, turning um, the, the difficult things into more positive things. So the first one is uh, struggles into lessons. How can our struggles become lessons in how to be patient or make us realise what is important in life? 
When I saw our garden fence come down, it was really tempting to think, well, it's winter now. None of us are going to be using our garden much anyway. Our neighbour's garden was, was pretty messy at the moment, so, you know, there's no real rush. But it had been frustrating for me that our other neighbour had not sorted out their fence sooner. Why should I expect anything different from this neighbour? Here was a chance for me to very literally love my neighbour as myself and a chance to have a positive interaction with a family that we hadn't had the chance to get to know yet. How can we turn our struggles into lessons? Second, how do we turn lies into truth? As we touched upon earlier, sometimes we'll be tempted with a lie and sometimes it may be even wrapped up with a small amount of truth. How do we combat those lies? Well, as Jesus showed, knowing and understanding the Bible is really important to help tackle lies. And Jesus also showed it's not just enough to say that thing isn't, is, is a lie. We need truth to replace them with. So how can we remind ourselves when we're tempted to believe the lies of the enemy? Well, here are some examples. Maybe you're tempted to think, I'm not important to God. Well, Ephesians 1 verses 4 to 5 said, God chose me to be adopted as his child. That's the truth you replace that lie with. Maybe you think God doesn't have a plan for my life. Well, Romans 8 verses 28 says, In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Maybe you think I'm not lovable. Or Psalm 17 verse 8 says, I am the apple of God's eye. Maybe you're tempted to think I'm not valuable. Or John 3 16 says, God loves me so much that he gave his only son that I might have eternal life. If you're hearing these lies come up in your mind to be reminded of them, find yourself some truths from the Bible to replace them by. Maybe you want to stick them on your fridge. Maybe you want to put them on your phone somewhere. Find ways to replace the lies that you're tempted to believe with truths from God. Finally, shortcuts to patient obedience. How can we turn the temptation of shortcuts into something um, better, longer term? There may be moments in your life when you think you're being offered everything you want, but there's a catch. Maybe you can get that expensive, flashy car you've always wanted, but the loan repayments are more than you can really afford to pay each month. Maybe you get offered that team leader role that you've been hoping for, but your boss tells you that you're going to have to fudge some of the stats each month. Maybe you've been longing for years to be in a relationship and someone tells you that they're interested in you, but they've not had a good track record of being faithful. Sometimes you need to look at these opportunities, things you're tempted to to go for and ask, is it genuine? What's the cost of me taking this thing and is it worth it? Is there another way of me getting this thing without compromising your values or waiting longer? And ultimately, what does God think about this opportunity? So hopefully today you've um, been challenged to think about some of the things that you might be experiencing, that you might struggle with. And I want you to look at these, uh, the, the fact that Jesus has experienced these things and be encouraged that these are things that um, he's modeled ways that you can respond to them too. The fact that Jesus has experienced these things means he can be close to us when we go through them as well. 
Um, we would love to leave some time for you to be able to, to respond to that. Um, I would also really encourage you with these things that it's great to share the things that you're challenged and tempted by at the moment with someone else. You find that sometimes bringing them out of the darkness, the secrecy that you've been holding them will take away their power like that. And so we would love to be able to um, just um, hear you share those frustrations with us. We'll have people um, who can pray with you if you're comfortable doing with that. Um, and I'll fi I find that if you don't share those things, if you've been challenged by something and you think, oh, I'll talk about it with someone later, the enemy again will take that away and help you to forget it. We want you to, to come today and to be relieved of some of the burdens that have been weighing you down. So we would love to be able to, to pray with you, but I think if we could have the worship band back up, we'll have a, um, a song with a chance just to reflect on anything you've heard today um, that you think might be um, challenging you, that God's got to do business with. Um, so we're going to leave some of that space for you to um, reflect upon those things. And then after that, we'd love to just spend a bit more time in ministry and inviting people to, to be, um, yeah, just be prayed for and ministered to one another. We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. Why not come along and visit us? We gather at three services across two sites on a Sunday and meet during the week in small groups across the city. More information on both of these can be found on our website. Thanks for listening and God bless.